Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that radicalizes all places and spaces. Today we have Adelaide, Ozzy, Zoe, and Kellen. And today we are chatting with our dear friend of the pod, Anna. Uh, We actually mentioned her on a recent episode when we spoke about trans joy and power because she recently gave a really transformative talk at UConn. Anyway, you can check that story out in our Bias in the Media slash Trans Power episode. Anna is an incredible educator, and we wanted to have her on the pod to discuss the ways in which education can be used as an incredible tool for social justice and, and social change. She is a doctor, so we have two doctors on the call today um, in chemical engineering, a trans and Taurus icon, a STEM educator at the collegiate level, and also an incredible and famous educator on TikTok. If you don't already follow her, we will link to that in the description, but her handle is at that Anna Marie. Welcome, Anna. We are so happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. This is so nice to be here. Thanks so much. (laughs) It is such a flex to be able to say, like, this is my favorite podcast, hands down. So it's just such a flex to be able to say I was on my favorite podcast. So thank you for this amazing opportunity. Oh my God. God. To hang out with you all. We're so excited to have you. It's a flex to know that a famous educator and just a general icon has this as her favorite podcast. So the feeling is mutual. Zoe makes fun of me because I do this literally every time (laughs) that we have a guest. (laughs) Like, I love you so much. You're the best guest ever. I just love really hard. I don't know. I, there's there's enough. Never stop loving hard. Exactly. It's the Aries, Sun, Pisces, Venus combo. It's like, pff, at you. I was going to be mm-hmm. like, I haven't made fun of you for that in a while, but then I realized we just haven't had a guest on in a while. Well, and especially not guests that I That we know. Knew or or that, that you, yeah. yeah, that you've known. Exactly. That's such a good point. Yes. Also, can we find out what the rest of your chart is besides being a Taurus? Oh, I am a Taurus Sun Capricorn Moon Scorpio Rising. Wow. We love that. Powerful. We have a Cap Moon and a Scorpio I'm Rising also, also here. Moon, yes. Yeah, and a Venus in Taurus. So I also love hard. Oh my God. So I powerful. love Venus in Taurus. Yeah. Mm, me too. Extremely powerful. Um, so is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about you before we dive in? I think that was a fantastic introduction. <laughs> um, the only thing maybe worth noting is my official job title as a lecturer in the Department of Chemical Engineering at UMass Amherst. I'm here in the Pioneer Valley. I'm not a big fan of that name. It's a very <laughs> colonizer name, but I'm here in the Valley of Western Mass, and I'm happy to be here. Is that technically the Berkshires? It's a little bit east of the Berkshires, but it's close. Hell yeah. We get to go, I get to go leaf peeping. Love that. <laughs> because I love the fall ever so much. I mean, that's the important, that's why I was asking, basically. So it's important. <laughs> you knew the important right. piece of information. 
Yeah. So let's start with your personal philosophy on education. Um, we had an amazing opportunity to speak on the phone when we were prepping for this episode, and you spoke a bit about what you bring to the table as an educator. You're an educator through and through, like in your soul, which I love. Um, and you mentioned that your philosophy, as well as your drive for justice, is a current that runs through all of your education practices. So can you talk a bit about what those ethos and philosophies are? Absolutely, yeah. This is all prefaced um, with the fact that I always talk about how being queer in STEM is awesome. It's an advent. It's advantageous. Mm. But I talk about that. But I also always have to give the precondition that queer people don't have to have some sort of special magical properties to belong in STEM. They just belong there because they're people, and right. we all need to be everywhere. Yes. Queer everything and trans everyone. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but. The way I tell my story is um, in my very first semester of my PhD program at UConn, I did my bachelor's in chemical engineering at UConn and I stayed for my PhD. And in that very first semester was the semester that A, I realized that I wanted to be a teacher because I got to TA for a course called unit operations. And I had such a good time and was like, oh, this is it. This is what I want to do. And that was such a magical, magical moment. Also, that was the semester I realized I had to transition. So there were, Powerful. and I was taking three grad courses, teaching a class, not just TA, but teaching a whole class. And then I figured I was trans in 2017 during you know who's era. So that oh. was a wild semester for me. Wow. But I made it. So. <laughs> so proud of you. Thank you. Um, and how that kind of worked out was there was not a lot of queerness in chemical engineering at UConn. There's not a lot of queerness in chemical engineering in general or engineering or STEM in general. So I basically had to live two lives. I had my mm. STEM life that I did during the day and on nights and weekends, I got to be Anna and I got to be myself and I got to go be with queer people. And that's why I'm so happy that I'm here in Western Massachusetts right now because what I used to do very regularly was escape to Northampton, Massachusetts, the lesbian capital of the country to get to be a gay person and get to be a person and get to be Anna. Yes. And how that eventually worked out too, was that I made a lot of queer friends at UConn, none of them in STEM, actually one of them in STEM, but not engineering. So I had all these like STEM friends and then all these queer friends of different fields and they were all academics too. So I had friends in economics, sociology, all these different fields, anthropology. And so I was able to get this sort of really diverse pool of people and diverse perspectives that I then brought into STEM and the STEM world, um, reading all about, you know, leftist social justice topics, all about liberative pedagogies that are not happening in engineering. I mean, different fields are all at different levels of catching up with the whole, you know, active learning and other forms of liberative pedagogy, but STEM is in last place, I guarantee you. It's mostly, you know, three exams in a final or, you know, basically instructors treating their students like they're information sponges and just like teaching, like reading out of a textbook, drawing it on a whiteboard and expecting people to take it up. There's not as much, it's changing and they're definitely better educators and worse educators. But in general, um, my formal STEM training was very much based in um, not that. So being exposed to all these different forms of pedagogy and being like, oh, you can do that. 
um, was really eye-opening. And so getting to be a queer person, getting to be open and being able to bring my full experiences and my values into STEM education was really, really valuable. And it prepared me for this like interdisciplinary work. STEM people don't understand what it means to work with an anthropologist for their work or work with a sociology person for their work. But I do that all the time. I bring in guest speakers to my classes who are from geosciences and from all over the place to talk about different perspectives about engineering and about science that students love. They love it because they're getting exposed to things that aren't just like white Western scientific hegemony. And I get a lot of value out of that. I get students get a lot of value out of it. I get a lot of value out of it. So it's just bringing all the different minds together. I love that. Um, well, building off of that a bit, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like some of the ways that you put your teaching philosophy into practice in the classroom. Um, I saw this example that you posted on your Substack of this really cool like syllabus slash zine that you made um, for one of your classes. Um, so that seems like a great example, but yeah, anything else you wanna share? Yeah, I, I will start by saying that I'm still a student of all these things. I'm still a student of abolition, as I say. That's how um, it's got to be. <laughs> it's how it's got to be. We're always going to be students. Yes. And I think that mentality, bringing that into your teaching is always uh, good. Mm -hmm. I Basically, one of the most important things is breaking down the hierarchy of teacher up top, student on the bottom, and just sort of flipping that on its head and bringing myself totally. down to students level and elevating students' um, abilities through agency. Student agency is really huge for me. But the syllabus thing was an idea I got from listening to an episode of a different non-season of the bitch podcast called Abolition Gasp. Science. Basically, whenever <laughs> I hear the words those. like basically whenever I hear the words science next to anything social justice related, I'm like, ooh, I gotta go there because there's just yeah. not a lot of resources and voices in that field. So when I saw a podcast called Abolition Science, I knew I had to subscribe. And then one of their episodes. They had Dr. Carmen Kynard, who is a professor of English at Texas Christian University, and she uh, uses zines to distribute her syllabi. So her syllabus is literally a zine. And that just immediately filled my mind with so many ideas and was like, oh, my goodness, I have to try that. I think there's so much there. And so I bounced some ideas off of my mentee at the time. This was when I was in grad school and I had undergraduate mentees. Um, so my mentee Nia Samuels. Shout out Nia. You're amazing. Um, she's she's now getting her master's degree. So that's awesome. But um, she basically helped me idea or, or she helped me develop the idea behind what would it mean for the syllabus to be a zine or what would it mean for the syllabus to be something interactive that could be actually useful for students. What do academics say all the time? Read the syllabus. All the answers are in the syllabus. What if we made the syllabus actually useful and fun to read? So what I did was I made a syllabus that was full of colorful cartoons and affirmations like you got this or filled with homework tips like start the homework early and all these things for how to succeed in the course. I think if we want students to succeed in the course, we should tell them how to succeed in the course instead of treating it like a puzzle that they have to solve. Because what that mm -hmm. does is it leaves behind first generation students and leaves behind all these factors of marginalized students. So one of the things that Nia came up with actually was I asked her, what would you like to see in, let's say you had some sort of guidebook or field guide to the course. She came up with the idea of having a grade tracker in the zine. So 
having a page. I've made it the centerfold of the zine, just a page that was like, here's how you did on homework one, log it in the book, how homework two, log it in the book so that you always knew where you were and you're mm. in the course. And again, to de-emphasize the importance of like this number grade and prioritize like learning above the number grade. I had this big, big text that said, you are worth more than your grades <laughs> next, next to that also. So I just filled it with fun art and affirmations and pride flags. I also filled it with, you know, every syllabus in academia is required to have the accommodation statements, you know, religious exemption, the Title IX statements. I had those statements, but right next to them, I would always have my own personal commitment to those statements. So here's my statement about what I'm supposed to say according to the university about, you know, students with disabilities. And here's what I'm actually committed to do in my class. Like here is how I specifically, Anna, am making this course accessible. Here are the specific action items that I'm doing. So making it very clear that I'm not just saying this because, you know, I'm required to, but making a commitment really shows to students that I care and that I'm being considerate of all these things and they're not just being put in there because I have to. Other forms of student agency and student involvement, I've done a lot of work in student teaching. I got one idea from this book for white folks who teach in the hood and the rest of y'all too by Chris Emden. Basically, I just find stuff in the wild, different forms of pedagogy. And I Mm. say, ooh, I like that. I'm going to try that. And then I adapt it slightly to STEM. So what I did was I wanted to talk about environmental justice in my chemical engineering courses, which I'm sure your listeners know what environmental justice is, but it's just (laughs) the way by which um, climate change is disproportionately impacting, you know, people of color, women, all these different marginalized groups on the basis Mm. of their economic and et cetera, subjugation. So I figured, why would I, a white woman, just stand in front of the class and like discuss environmental justice and my ideas for what environmental justice is when other people can probably do it better? So I basically at the start of the semester, I said, hey, one week during this course, I want it to be EJ week, environmental justice week, but I don't want to teach it myself. I want feedback from you. And so I started meeting with this small group of students who self-selected self-volunteer to be part of this working group. I called it a co-generative dialogue where together we co-developed the content for that week. And I sort of had them and empowered them to teach that material. I obviously compensated them for their labor. (laughs) Um, I didn't just, you know, extract free labor from them, but I got their perspectives. I got the perspectives of women and people of color, students of color in that class. Um, And you could read my ASE paper all about it. Um, It's on my website, but that had a lot of really positive outcomes because the students were learning about it from their peers and not just from me standing in the front of the room. Um, mm-hmm. It was able to spark all these conversations about what it means to use chemical engineering for social good and specifically what it means for social good in Connecticut. I always like to keep politics local and focus on local examples. Anyone can talk about Flint, Michigan or something going on in a different country, but I said, okay, Connecticut, all the top polluting sources, all the waste incinerators, all the big polluting companies are all located in the five cities with the highest percentage of people of color, New Britain, Waterbury, you know, Hartford, et cetera, here in Connecticut. So what's the deal with that? And I tried to root it. I tried to root it specifically in place. And that actually sparked a lot of really awesome and vulnerable conversations and advanced the conversation about racial justice, about environmental justice in really unique ways. I had two students who we're both from Waterbury, Connecticut, which is also around where I grew up. Um, and they had never connected on the basis of both being from Waterbury before. But after that section of that course, 
um, both walked away with a better understanding of each other's lives. One wasn't sure exactly what he wanted to do with his chemical engineering degree before, you know, that semester. And now he's pursuing a degree in environmental law. So it's exposing all these different ideas of what That's chemical so cool. engineering could be and hopefully career paths for students who aren't interested in working at a refinery because chemical engineering just trains you to work at an oil refinery. And totally. I think that's messed up. Yeah. So I'm trying to expose students to different ideas and different career paths. Yeah. I love that. I'm also still, when you said that the zine idea came from Texas Christian university, I was, was like, that is the last place I would have, um, I've never even heard of that school, but just like by that title would not have been like, <laughs> that's a place to get radical ideas. That's the power of black abolitionist organizing and yeah. educators. Yeah, that's amazing. Dr. Carmen Kynart. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I wanted to ask a follow-up. When you're implementing these things in academia, especially in STEM, have you received any pushback from administrators um, or from any students? Or have people been pretty into it? Or at least okay with so it? So far, no. Mm-hmm. So far, no one has stopped me. Probably because they don't know exactly everything that goes down in the classroom because we get radical. I basically pose the question to students what they think about all this. And my students are like, yeah, fuck capitalism. Like my <laughs> students have said that. That's amazing. And Kids I'm not like right. reading them Karl Marx or anything, although I could be. Um, but I'm not. <laughs> I'm just presenting them with the information in in order that they would come to their own conclusion that capitalism and colonialism are messing our shit up. And they reach that conclusion. And a lot of them do. Um There are, of course, the end of semester student teacher evaluations. Um, And of course, you know, we can do these exercises and activities and not every student is going to come away with the same ideas. And that's fine. There are students who really, really love it and really, really engage. There are also students who are just like, meh, whatever. I'll tune out this week and, you know, I'll come back next week when we're back to talking about math. And so far, only maybe like once or twice I've gotten at the very end of the semester in the teaching evaluations, which are anonymous, someone's like, meh, this liberal garbage. But like, no one like stands up and like shouts at me and gets in a fight with me during class time, at least not yet in my four or five years of teaching in this manner of using these different techniques and talking about all these social justice related topics in STEM. Mm. And other educators I'm talking to, um, the ones who are like with it and like thinking like me, they're like, yes, I love it. And then everyone else is just like, oh yeah, DEI, cool, love it. And I don't really get it, but you know, no one's yet stopped me. I feel like there's a certain class of like educated New England liberal who knows what they're supposed to say about social justice mm-hmm. and knows what they're supposed to say when they're talking to a trans person. Mm-hmm. But like the vibe isn't quite there. Right. And like I can tell, trans people can tell when you actually think of me as a woman versus when you think of me as like a man who you're supposed to call she, her. Because that's what comes out when you misgender me or treat me in a certain way or talk to me in a certain way. When someone's talking to me, like I'm one of the guys, I'm like, who are you talking to? (laughs) Literally, (laughs) who do you think this is, bitch? (laughs) Who do you think I am? So yeah, that's the type of more um, covert bigotry that one might have to deal with, at least in my uh, specific spaces. There is, of course, the occasional... Uh, shall we say, bias incident, as they're so affectionately called in DEI and academia spaces. One time I came out to a fellow grad student and he just straight up asked me immediately, 
So when are you getting the surgery? Oh, God. Whoa. Literally mind your damn business, bro. Mind your freaking business. Yeah. And some light misrendering mm. from my co-PI, but that's behind me. Yeah. That's amazing because when I was doing teaching when I was in grad school, I think partially because of kind of the conservative nature of Buffalo as a city, there would be a lot of like 18-year-old boys. And also I was teaching like gen eds, so I would get everyone. And, you know, there would be a lot of very conservative boys who would absolutely push back on some things that I was saying when I was literally teaching like global history. (laughs) I think where I've lucked out is that I've mostly taught seniors mm, in chemical engineering. Really nice. yeah. So like freshmen, they're straight out of high school. They could be coming from anywhere. They could be coming from freaking, you know, yeah, wherever in exactly. the country, whatever conservative little town. And they think they know everything because they're 18 years old and they're white men and they're invincible. And so they'll challenge, they're more likely to challenge me than maybe a 21 or 22 year old who understands how you're supposed to behave right. in academia and or they've actually received some liberal education and are like oh wait trans people aren't (laughs) dangerous they're just vibing that or they've just sort of figured out how to navigate a system because like when you are you know a cis white man and have all this privilege you know what like the right answers are and from like the social justice perspective like if i handed you like a 10 question multiple choice quiz about how to not be a racist you can ace that quiz even if you're the biggest fucking racist in the world Mm. and our only means of like you know sort of uh, addressing that sort of bias is these like diversity trainings or whatever which are inadequate right so there's been a push to like have like an anti-black racism course be a requirement for all students and that actually was implemented at uconn which i think is amazing that is awesome Uh, and we should keep building out that model. Absolutely. Yeah. Also, just before I lean into this next question, I wanted to shout out one of my favorite TikToks you've done recently, which is about um, like abolishing tests um, and yeah. that sort of thing. So I think, you know, people should check that out. We're going to link to it all. Um, but I think it speaks to everything that you were saying about like valuing the actual learning being happened the actual learning that's happening and not the specific things that a collegiate institute may be um, asking for. Yeah, I think there's a direct parallel between like factory style education that's like designed to get you to all face the same exact training so you could all go work at a refinery and these sort of like liberative pedagogies. That's like a one-to-one between like the capitalist model of Education exists to get people jobs versus a more liberative model and restorative model of education and like familiarity with like science and arts and everything. It leads to a better, more moral society. Right. It's a net good. Yeah. It's just a net good. And that manifests in our attitudes about our students, how they are supposed to act, how they're supposed to behave, what professionalism, quote unquote, looks like, what behaviors or hairstyles or whatever professional um, it also manifests in our methods of assessment. And this is getting very much into inside baseball ed speak, but I am anti-exam because I think they decrease students' ability to show their actual talents. I'm, I'm, I'm against exams for a lot of reasons. Um, I think that if you want to build these sort of like really good collaborative interdisciplinary workers who are good problem solvers and can think outside of the box, 
the way to not nourish that is to give them exams where they have two hours um, of compressed time where they have to solve 10 different problems and they don't get enough time. They don't get any outside resources. They don't get Google. Every engineer will tell you that Google is your best friend. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the same thing for anything. We're the fields yeah. need to continue to, excuse me, evolve. So it's like, what is happening? Mm -hmm. And like, when I think about education as restorative, education as healing, what I don't think about are grades and deadlines and harsh exams that are worth 50% of your grade. So I am against grading in general. I'm against exams in general. I do think that obviously you need some sort of mechanism for giving students feedback and teaching them and interfacing with them. But my hottest take is that exams are not it, man. I love <laughs> it. I freaking love it. I love it. So I, I think taken... as an abolitionist, and I think, you know, restorative justice versus punitive justice. Mm -hmm. And even if you ignore the school to prison pipeline, which is a literal mechanism by which students fail out of school and get into prison, this mentality of like, oh, you got a terrible grade on the first exam, which means you can never achieve an A, you are locked into this terrible grade, no matter how much you improve later in the semester. Screw that. If students can demonstrate their knowledge in any manner of ways, go for it. You deserve that A, man. Love that. I actually haven't taken a single exam in grad school, and I love that for me because Ugh. I hate exams. Yeah, no. I get but it. I'm not in a STEM field. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, STEM is all exams. For a reason. And homeworks. Right. <laughs> there are other forms of value and other forms of education that we can value, too. The method that I use this semester is called labor-based grading, which is a deliberately anti-racist form of grading because it explicitly devalues me as the educator and what I think is like you know, a rigid rubric for success. It encourages students to pursue their own interests and use their own time how they see fit. Hell yeah. And gives them a lot of flexibility. So let's talk a little bit more about your experience at, specifically as a trans STEM educator in academia. So what has your experience been like? What have some of the challenges been? And what have been some of the more gratifying experiences? The first word that comes to mind whenever people ask me, what is it like to be trans in STEM is lonely. There are not a lot of us, but thanks to twitter.com, this wonderful website run by this wonderful man, <laughs> um, I've been able to find more and more people. But by and large, for the first several years of my transition, I was the only trans chemical engineer that I knew. And so it was very much forging my own path. Mm. Um, and of course, dealing with the microaggressions and bigotry and all these things um, was kind of discouraging. But the more I persisted and the more I found queer people and trans people outside of STEM, the more I felt supported. Just community is everything is what I've learned. Community is everything. Yes. Um, and especially now, like it makes finding other trans people in STEM now so much more gratifying that I had that gap period. I wish obviously for no trans people to have that gap period because I want all trans people to be like surrounded and like enraptured in love and support from the jump. But totally. for me, at least now when I meet other trans people in STEM, it's like, ah, I finally found you. Yes. It's so nice. <laughs> I go to things like the OSTEM conference, which is the Out in STEM conference. And it's so gratifying just being, I am surrounded by queer and trans people in STEM. How mind blowing is that? Because I was so alone for so long. 
But now I get to be like, I found you. I found you. And that's why I try to be there for other people through mentoring and other things like that. I have found a small, small cohort of trans grad students in chemical engineering. And every couple of months we do brunch and it's so wholesome. And I have a few other trans people in STEM more broadly, um, some back at UConn, some at like University of Virginia, a bunch of people all over the place who are like my kids. And they're in their like first year or two of their transition. And I'm just trying to provide them with all the resources that they need, everything that they need to navigate the systems of like how to change your name at your university to how to navigate coming out to your advisor, which is such a specific experience of like your advisor is your boss on some level, but they're also like your colleagues. So how do you navigate coming out to them and that sort of specific experience? So I try to be as helpful as I can. And I try to mother as much as I can. My my philosophy when it comes to trans mentoring and trans education is just that I am one link in a chain stretching back infinitely into the past and infinitely into the future. I am standing on the shoulders of many trans people before me. I'm only here because of them. I only exist and I only can have a job in STEM because of them who came before me, all of my trans ancestors. And similarly, all of my trans mentees have to stand on my shoulders. So I have to be strong for myself, but also for them. I can't burn myself out trying to help other people because... Sustainability in all of its forms. Sustainability in all of its forms, exactly. So I don't see myself as, you know, the big, I'm going to save the world. I'm (laughs) white savior of the trans community or whatever. I am just one person and I'm trying to keep the chain going, have us persist have us stay resilient, keep us waking up every morning feeling amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I want to shift a little to talk more about your TikTok. So your content is pretty vast, as Addy mentioned in the beginning, spanning from like trans rights and abolitionist related content to chemical engineering content. And as you've talked about, these things are related, but I'm curious what it's like to have such a widespread area of topics. Do you find that your audience kind of exists in the specific niche of like trans abolitionists who also love chemical engineering? Do you get folks that are looking for one of those things and kind of find the rest? Or what have you noticed in that regard? What a niche, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how many followers like I would have if I could only attract people who are trans and abolitionists and chemical engineers. <laughs> Probably like well, seven instead of In my 90, mind, 000. I was like, there could be way more than I think. There could be way more. You <laughs> never know. You never know. The dolls are out here. Yeah, exactly. Um, this is deep and a lore. But I started TikTok. <laughs> I started TikTok actually to make daily dance videos. Yeah, the to dance make... of the day. <laughs> dance of the day, not to make micro video essays. Um, I had a friend who similar to how Adelaide is doing now, just like posting one video of themselves dancing every day and sort of challenging themselves to like move their body and be at one with their body. And I started it, I downloaded TikTok and started making content in July of 2021, like three weeks before my dissertation defense, because I had already finished the written document. I was just working on my slides at that point for the talk. And I had this lull in what I had to do to finish my PhD. So in the weeks leading up, I started just like dancing, just like to songs that I liked. It was so simple. And somehow through 
the algorithm under which we are all living under the specter of. Yeah, exactly. Um, I started seeing more trans people on TikTok, started following them, started to see some of the sort of like discourse uh, that was happening on the app. And I was like, you know mm -hmm. what? <laughs> Maybe I can say my piece about this. I fell into that trap of having to say things on the internet. Pro tip, <laughs> don't say things on the internet. But... <laughs> If you do, make sure you can as back we it say up on a facts. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> make sure you can back it up with facts and experience and yeah, stories. Right. And I felt somewhat qualified to do that as someone who had been transitioning for like four years at that point. Um, so first of all, early on, one of my dance videos was me passing my de defense. It was me and my regalia having yes. just said, I got a PhD in chemical engineering. I'm a trans chemical engineer, baby. And then that was that actually got, instead of like two views, it got like a couple hundred views. And I was like, oh, well, maybe I'm building a brand or something. Um, and that was the beginnings of talking about what it's like being a dem trans baddie. Um, you know, TikTok has these like trends of just like, you know, mimicking and mouthing speech. So I would talk about being trans and stem through these like little skits or whatever. And I can't even remember what compelled me to make my first like micro video essay. But I, my media diet is mostly long form content, podcasts, video essays, that sort of thing. So I knew the structure and the form of making a piece of video entertainment, edu edutainment, if yes, you will. Yes. Um, and I sort of put my skills, not skills yet, because I hadn't developed them, but like my knowledge of what a video essay looked like. And I think it was a video of me like painting my nails and talking about something to do with transness or something to do with being a lesbian or something. And that popped off. And after a couple more of those, I had one that really popped off of me talking about trans women in women's spaces and what that means. Mm. And that ultimately now has like half a million views. It was one of my earliest, like most successful videos. Damn. I know. <laughs> and what I think appeals to people about that video is I sort of speak to what the TERFs are also speaking to. When you're an educator, you kind of have to think about like who your learner is, what are their prerequisite, what's their prerequisite knowledge, what are their fears and concerns. And so I think what makes turf ideology so dangerous is that it speaks to very real concerns that maybe cis women have about like, you know, people who have male experience being in women's spaces or like something like that. And so speaking directly to that fear and being like providing a counter narrative, that's like, here's what you're concerned about. I'm going to validate that fear but also pick apart why what the TERFs are saying is wrong and incorrect based on my own experience and being vulnerable with them. I think there's a lot of value in that. And half a million people seem to agree. Um, I think there's definitely a place for telling TERFs and Nazis to fuck off. But I think that the actual full-on dyed-in-the-wool bigots are small population. And there's the whole everyone else that we could be appealing to. And obviously there's a whole thing of respectability politics that I'm always grappling with because I try to be radical and I try to be like the next step in the scaffolding to more radical ideas. I try to frame my content as more than the trans 101. There's a lot of content out there that's like, what's a trans person? Sex versus gender. Da, da, da. And there's value for that. But when I think about STEM education, which is what my formal training is in, you take arithmetic, when you're doing like math education, you take arithmetic, then you take pre-algebra, algebra, pre-calculus, calculus, 
one through two, one, two, three, four, and then you apply in your STEM courses. There's this whole structure, this whole system by which you learn math and get deeper and deeper knowledge. When it comes to social justice, the American public school education system utterly fails people. And so there's this huge gap between there are two sexes in biology and what is the actual, you know, a scientific truth and also sociological truth that we live every single day. And so thinking about what my learners prerequisite knowledge is and what their concerns are, I'm applying my skills and like formal training as a college educator and adult education to TikTok. And so I think that's pretty valuable. My trick, I think, is to sort of talk about a few different things um, from trans issues to science and also science and social justice, talking about everything else that I do and just like fun little dance challenges. It's not what you're supposed to do in the algorithm. In the algorithm, it's like if you do cooking content and you do like video essays, you're supposed to have a channel for each of those things or else the algorithm doesn't really know where to sort you and doesn't promote you well in the algorithm because it doesn't know what your audience is supposed to be. So it can't figure out how to boost you or so it just leaves you in the dust. Um, And so I have this like style that I sort of keep consistent with all of my videos that maybe sometimes I'm talking about trans issues, maybe sometimes I'm talking about science. But the thread is always, um, first of all, it's visually similar. I'm always like at my desk or or have some sort of similar way of talking. Um, But there is a through line always of just like challenging dominant narratives, saying F you to bigotry, but trying to be smart about it and trying to be appealing about it. So I do take a somewhat of a risk and somewhat of hit to my followers to talk about such different topics sometimes. Like sometimes it's a very straightforward, like trans issues thing. And sometimes it's a very straightforward plastics thing where maybe I make some trans jokes, but it's always in service of uh, talking about plastic. But I think all issues are connected. Like we can't separate the discrimination of trans people and the willingness to pollute the environment with plastics. Like it's all, you can basically play like six steps to Kevin Bacon and connect all the biggest political issues of our time through like capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, and colonialism. And if you just keep that message consistent, I think people really resonate with that. So building off of that question and and your answer, is that the kind of message that you try to bring to your classrooms as well? Is that the way that you bring sort of your trans feminist lens to teaching chemical engineering? Yeah, so I try to teach chemical engineering with feminist values best I can and with trans feminist values and abolitionist values best I can. I think there are two pieces to that. One is actually thinking about the content of what I'm teaching, and one is also the delivery mechanism. So I've talked about the sort of delivery mechanism of, you know, against grading, against exams, and sort of making classrooms more equitable that way. Um, I also believe in radical vulnerability, um, talking about my transition, talking about mental illness, and that really helps my students say, oh, it's okay if I come to the class and I'm not perfect, or it's okay if I am a little bit late on an assignment because I was having a mental health crisis. And all these sort of little things that I do in valuing student life. And there's also changing what I actually teach and how I teach it content-wise. First of all, I always like to throw around phrases like the universe is non-binary. All the time in STEM, it's like nature defies our simple monkey brain categorizations of how to sort nature into neat little boxes. And that's not just with gender, it's with everything. I mean, I talk about like 
miscible polymer and copolymer blends. And there's polymer blends being... (laughs) You heard of them? I haven't. (laughs) When you mix two types of polymer, they're either miscible, meaning they mix well together. They're immiscible, meaning they're totally not mixable, like they form discrete phases of each other. Or because the universe is non-binary, they could be compatible, meaning they're sort of not totally miscible, but um, they still form discrete phases, but those phases are more like orderly and we could do something with it. So, Wow, we're learning every- science here today too, folks. <laughs> we're learning science today. Um, that's what you <laughs> that's get with Anna Marie. Right. That's right. You get social justice and you get science. Yes. <laughs> um, so I feel like every few lectures... I'm saying something along the lines of science is non-binary. And I point that out explicitly and I say that just to drive the message home of not just the content of what I'm teaching, but how you're supposed to be thinking about science. If you're thinking about science in this binary way, in this sort of hegemonic way of like nature fits into these little boxes and categorizations, then you're never going to get the full picture. But if you embrace the liminal and you embrace this sort of like queerness of like things that fall into categories as easily, then you become a better educator. And that's why I'm trying to queer engineering, why I'm trying to queer science, is we need to de-emphasize these sort of rigid binary categories in all these realms, cross science. And of course, I try to center like diverse voices as much as I can in like little ways you could always sprinkle in like Alice Parker, who developed the home heating system. Um, I teach a course in the fall called Process Dynamics and Control where we're learning about at, at the most basic level, like how a thermostat works, how you set a temperature to like 67. And then that activates the sort of mechanism of like your thermos heat heats up a little bit more. And then your temperature in the room reaches a set point gradually, basically that sort of similar mechanism. And so the great introductory example to that is Alice Parker, who was a black woman in the 1920s who developed home zone heating which before then you basically heated your whole your whole home with like a fireplace but she invented the idea because she saw her family in different rooms of her house being at different temperatures and said hey what if we invented this means of like distributing steam through tubes to be able to set the first floor at a different temperature than the second floor or something like that so she patented that system in like 1919 and 1920 and so that's a great simple little example of like black women are amazing shout out black women we love Um, it (laughs) right thank you black women and that's just a little example and i also try to talk about bigger examples like the course i'm teaching right now is all about polymers and all about plastics and how we think about plastics partially about how they're made and like the engineering behind plastic products are made, but also rhetoric and narratives and how we treat plastics. So the main core text that we're learning about in the book is a book called Pollution is Colonialism by an indigenous author, Max LeBoyron. And that's the sort of thread through which we're taking the whole course in terms of thinking about how we got to a point where plastic is polluting everywhere, not just like bottles in the landfills, but also BPA in our bloodstreams or whatever. And I assign little readings too, like by Alice Wong, disability activist, and thinking about plastic straws. The first one of the first lectures I taught this semester was like, okay, plastic straws, they're evil, right? We should get rid of them all. Not quite. <laughs> Here's this disability advocate who, you know, needs a straw to drink. Totally. So it's a complicated situation. Um, and trying to introduce students to the complexity 
of the problem and not just say all plastics are evil, um, but learning to live with plastic and thinking of better sustainable alternatives and looking at the nuance and bridging that gap. Because I think chemical engineers are really perfectly suited to handle the plastics crisis and handle plastic pollution because they have that formal training in engineering and chemistry and organic chemistry to be able to deal with the polymers. But also, I think chemical engineers are really primed for interdisciplinary thinking and queer thinking and radical thinking if we just prepare them to do so. And so I'm trying to unlock that ability in that. I love that. Well, I wanted to ask um, something a little more timely um, because there have been, you know, a lot of bills and even laws actually passed this year that are, you know, making it so you can't talk about different queer or trans identities in the classroom um, and like what books can be discussed and things like that. I'm just curious if that has impacted your work at all. I mean, I know you don't work in a state where that's specifically the case, but like, has that changed how you kind of like think about your place in this work at all? Yeah, it's an amazing question. I'm lucky enough that I teach in Massachusetts where I think the likelihood of a bill like that being passed is fairly low. We have a lesbian governor now. (laughs) And I think Massachusetts was the only state, not that voting blue is an indicator of like how radical you are, but, but like, it was Massachusetts and Hawaii were the only two states to vote where every single county also voted for Hillary. Um, so libs aren't great, but at least we're not that bad. Right. Um, okay, right. We're not overtly terrible. We just have pockets of terrible. Um, yes. Yeah, so I actually, well, first of all, my strategy is just to get even more annoying. <laughs> Love that. And more in people's Amazing. faces about trans because I, I feel like I have to make up for everything happening in Florida and everything happening around the world. And just like, um, if I can just train my engineers to be full and well-rounded people, then maybe I can counteract a little bit of what's happening elsewhere. Because as we know, these educational impacts aren't going to just be like for the next couple of years until maybe we get some bill or federal judge overturn something. These are going to have cascading effects across decades. The people who got a degree in engineering or whatever in the next couple of years will go on to have long careers. So these will have long impacts, even if they're, they are only in place for a couple of years and we don't have any idea how long they'll be in, impacted for. So I just need to be even more <laughs> steadfast in my approach to radical teaching and introducing engineers to as diverse perspectives as possible. And I also offered on Twitter to be like, hey, if anyone in Florida wants me to come be a guest lecturer and say the radical things that you're not allowed to say, but I think I'm allowed to say it, then go ahead. And I want to be able to do that. And I, in fact, I know a couple people who have been able to get away with that. But someone very kindly and nicely slid into my DMs after I tweeted that, saying that's not really how it works, saying that if, you know... If I come and give a talk, I'm still on, you know, especially if I get like an honorarium and I'm on the payroll or whatever, um, which I would totally do a talk for free if it's for that specific purpose. Mm -hmm. But if anyone finds out that they hired me specifically for that purpose, that educator in Florida who got me to come talk can still get in trouble, can still, you know, be put on a list and handed off to the governor. Like they're making lists in Florida. It's of so any educator who engages in 
DEI, which is surreal to me because I also critique DEI, but from a standpoint of it's not far enough. Right. Of course, right, exactly. <laughs> so DEI has got it rough um, from both sides, but <laughs> yeah, it's really tricky, but my approach has been to try to be sneaky about it and try to get into spaces where I can and also to be as loud as possible up here in the North and try to educate people and also educate people about the fact that like the South isn't just this terrible evil place where everyone there is terrible. Like, no, this is being done to them right. by a minority of asshole-ish Republicans right. in power who happen to be in power thanks to gerrymandering and all these things that are happening to them. Right. Yeah. Florida you know? has some of the most like egregious you know, like there's there's this a very small amount of polling. Again, we all here on this call know that voting is not going to necessarily save us. But when it's like in Florida, like voting is basically impossible if you're in the working class, um, depending on what neighborhood you're in, because they make it so fucking difficult to do that. And that's intentional, obviously. Yeah, you know? exactly. So if I can just find little ways to be rebellious in my own right, to show people that you can be a successful trans chemical engineer, you know, talk about my mental health, help talk about my mental health in class, talk about, you know, today was my five year anniversary, and, you know, encourage my students to go hug a trans person today. Yeah. And just like, show people that we're not dangerous. Right. And not terrible. We're just soft yeah. babies, basically. <laughs> we mean no harm other than harm to the vast institutions of violence exactly. that govern our daily lives. We don't want to harm you, individual. It's the system yeah. that's screwing all of us up. So let's show a little right, that's solidarity. The thing. It's going to help yeah. them also. But it's going to help you also. Realize it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I talk all the time about how being trans in STEM is awesome. How being trans make you a better engineer. And how being queer makes you a better engineer by being able to recognize, you know, different perspectives. Absolutely. So, yeah. well, more in STEM is better STEM. And that's uh, That's a great transition to the last question I wanted to ask, which is about uh, science and queerness. Uh, so I was listening to your podcast, Rule 63, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. Everyone should check it out, um, especially if you are into science and technology. Um, I thought the TikTok episode was especially great. Um, but I was listening to this one about, um, I I forget what the topic of the episode was, but you mentioned this concept called like respect the goo, which was basically like a metaphor for how transition or like self-discovery can be like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly um and just like how when you're transitioning or figuring yourself out you're in this like goo state um and i was wondering if you have any other favorite examples of queer inspiration from nature or like things that you've taken from your science work uh into your gender totally that's a that's a good question the episode you might be talking about is one where i interviewed two amazing people one of whom is a trans mentor and trans mother to me. Her name is Cassandra Martinu. Mm, She's a yes, local trans elder. Yeah. yeah. It was about mentoring trans youth. That's the name of the episode, mentoring trans youth. And I talked to Cassandra Martineau. And I'll just say quick, Cassandra picked her name because of the Greek myth of Cassandra, who famously got all of her, was like blessed slash cursed with the ability to predict the future, but to have no one believe her about her vision of the future. Mm. 
Right. So she is literally the Cassandra of trans issues and of fascism. She's a big activist, big local trans elder, love her to death. And she gave the advice that everyone always says that transitioning is always like, you know, becoming a butterfly, like transitioning from an ugly caterpillar to a beautiful butterfly. No one ever mentions that for that first, like that, that interface of like being in your chrysalis, your body literally dissolves into goo and you become vulnerable and malleable and shapeable and you need to be protected. And that's what community is for, is to provide you that protection while you're going through that transitionary goo phase. So respect the goo, understand that you're not going to be perfect and well put together during that phase because it's messy. You're messy and that's fine. Embrace the goo, respect the goo. Otherwise, (laughs) I think that, again, like I said, queerness is infinite. Nature defies our categorizations. Science isn't reality. Science is our attempt to try to capture reality into these like neat little boxes while the universe just barrels through without regard for our tiny brains. And also, there's this phrase in statistics that I love. And I don't know if I have made a video about it yet, but it's a phrase called, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Mm-hmm. Meaning that all models and statistics basically gesture at the truth. Um, you can make a model like the ideal gas law. It's like pressure times volume equals some constant times temperature. If you increase temperature, you increase pressure. That's generally true, but it's not like a linear one-to-one. It's just a model. It gets you some of the way there, but not all the way there. I think that maps on well to this idea of like identity politics and trying to capture the entire diverse range of queer and trans experiences into like neat little tiny labels <laughs> Um, I have this video that I'm very proud of where I talk about um, queer identities and like are trans men lesbians and all these like bullshit discoursey things of trying to make these rigid boxes around these labels. But like we have to remember where these labels came from. These labels came from a specific like need to accomplish some political goal and to try to describe our experiences. but they're not everything. We're not going to be able to collapse all of reality and the nuances into a bunch of English nouns and adjectives and verbs. And not just because English is a colonizer language. Um, So embracing, I'm seeing a lot more people embrace the word queer instead of, you know, individual sectarian micro identities. And I think that's great. I think there's space for using words and language. That's awesome. I am pro micro identity. I'm not saying we can't have labels. I have many labels. I'm a demisexual trans lesbian, or as I just say, a gender non-compliant dyke. But I think the there's also identity. room for <laughs> the perfect identity. I'm too powerful. Exactly. Asexuality <laughs> is like a superpower. I'm incapable of being seduced. Do you know how powerful that makes me? <laughs> <laughs> Extremely. <laughs> but yeah, I think embracing the queer, embracing the liminal, embracing the in-betweenness, and understanding that not all models are wrong, but some are useful. Labels are useful. They are there to accomplish a specific goal of like, I can't just say, I can't, I can try to describe in like a thousand words what I am and who I am. But if I can just say, oh yeah, I'm a trans woman. And then like someone else also uses those words. We can like bond over that. I'm also kind of at the beginning personally of like a spiritual reawakening. I've been like very a religious, a spiritual for a long time. But recently, I'm getting into tarot, and I'm getting into crystals and stuff, and all those things that are seen by dominant science guy hegemony as like being frivolous or being non-scientific. 
But I think being able to embrace whatever brings you peace and makes you happy and brings you connection and joy is so valuable and should be encouraged and nourished. And so I'm trying to embrace that. I'm trying to um, deny Western science while also I'm trying to reconcile Western science with other ways of knowing other epistemologies, traditional knowledge, traditional knowledge, local knowledge above what, you know, the data you can get in a laboratory environment and make those connections. And I'm trying to make other people see those connections as well. I've started doing workshops and like consultations where people just come and they talk about, Hey, Anna, how do I connect my STEM project to like social justice? And because most science trained people, science and technology trained people can't make those connections very well. Mm. But I seem to have the skill for it as someone who has navigated both the realms of traditional Western science and the realms of queerness and social justice and leftism and abolition equally. And I could sort of find the common threads there. So recently a grad student was like, hey, I'm going to be doing this talk about like my research. I'm wondering if I could like talk to you about like what the social justice implications of that might be like having no idea where I would take it. And so I met with her. She started talking about her project on like a wearable skin patch that, you know, use color changing dyes and special sensors to detect, you know, your glucose levels or different types of um, disease diagnoses. And so having the prerequisite knowledge of um, Ozzy, you've worked on the flash forward podcast. So I'm going to shout out that. That I would say is like my other favorite podcast, like my second favorite. Hell and so yeah. they actually did a episode called like Ink RX or something about like color changing tattoos and like skin patches that have the same effect. And they brought on disability justice advocates who said, no, we don't want anything like that because that's like a privacy thing and an identity thing. And like all these different issues that someone might have with like having a tattoo permanently affixed to their body that shares their physical health status and their glucose levels or having a visible skin patch that shares like, Oh, I have this disease or a disability. Um, and that grad student that talked to me didn't even think of that. Mm. So I just try to help people make those connections where they see them because science people do not think about these things. And so I'm trying to infiltrate science with my knowledge of <laughs> different things, trying to make people make those connections, introduce them to diverse forms of scholarship that are, maybe outside of chemical engineering and maybe in the sociological or anthropology realm or like feminist science and technology studies realms. Totally. Well, unfortunately it is the time that we're going to have to let you go in a minute. But for that, um, for our listeners who do not want their time with, with you to be over, which I'm sure they don't, can you tell them um, where they can find your content and how they can support your work going forward. Absolutely. So it's all compiled on my website, thatannamarie.com. Incredible. Uh, I have TikTok and Instagram where I post my videos. I happen to be on Twitter and Mastodon as well, mostly to post links to my newsletter where I have a weekly newsletter. It's like every single week I post something, but like it rotates between like the free version and the paid version. So feel free to Subscribe and try it out for a little bit. Um, pay if you really like the work. Yes. Um, I also pay have a her. podcast. Huh? I said pay her. <laughs> pay her. Pay me for my labor. <laughs> Please and thank you. Um, I also have a podcast 
Um, we're on a season break right now, but we just wrapped up a whole long season where we covered everything from asexuality to trans women in sports to what do we do an episode on finding love as a trans person and navigating digital spaces as a trans person. Basically, the through line is why transphobia exists, how it manifests, and especially how it manifests in the digital realm and in online spaces. I did this whole two-hour audio documentary about TikTok and why it's transphobic. I know we're not supposed to be dogpiling on TikTok right now because it's possibly going to get banned, but I think we can hold space for the nuances as well. So I do a lot with realms, with respect to STEM and social justice, looking at how trans people navigate digital spaces. So basically, short version, it's writing on Substack, video on TikTok and Instagram, where I cross post most videos, and podcast, which you can find, Rule 63, on Spotify, YouTube, and Apple Podcasts. And we're going to link to everything. I also just took up DJing yes. <laughs> as like an additional fourth Amazing. slash ninth hobby. So stay tuned. And I have some see. of the best music taste I know. Oh, so thank you. I'm thinking of a DJ name, Dr. Curie. Ooh. As in Marie Curie, the other iconic, iconic. The, the other <laughs> iconic Polish chemist. I love that. I love so. that. Well, yeah. we freaking love you. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Thank you so much for taking the time to not only educate us on what the hell polymers are all about, but also <laughs> um, all of our listeners, too. And thank you for all the fucking incredible work that you do. Thank yeah, you thank so you. much for having me. Thank you. And I'm glad you're anti-exam because I would not pass a test on polymers right now. That's okay. Screw exams. <laughs> Students deserve better. Humanity deserves better. Go love each other. Love yes. and light. Fuck the system drop. and love and light. And we love you. Love you too. That was our episode. Thanks so much. Um, thanks again to Anna for joining us. And after you have gone to all the podcast places to find her podcast, you can go to all the podcast places to give us a rating as well. Five stars only, please. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, really wherever you're listening to us right now. You've already found us. Um, <laughs> you can also <laughs> go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash season of the bitch, where you can join our Discord. That's how we met Anna. We do find guests okay. there sometimes, so you should join. Um, and you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at season of the bee. Um, and check out our website, seasonofthebee.com. Why not? We have some merch there. It's just hanging out. It's ready whenever you'd like to buy it. It's beautiful, and we highly recommend it. 10 out of 10. Um, and that's that's really it. Love you all so much. Love Pisces you. has some merch, and that's what she's trying to tell you. Yes. She does have a little <laughs> season us. of the BT shirt. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Amazing. Love Love you. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Season of the Bitch.